This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by Dr. Barbara Pitkin of Stanford University. Dr. Pitkin is Senior Lecturer in Religious Studies at Stanford, and she's authored a new book published with Oxford University Press in 2020 titled Calvin, the Bible, and History, Exegesis and Historical Reflection in the Era of Reform. Dr. Pitkin, congratulations on the new book, and thank you for joining me here this morning. Thanks very much, Zach. I'm really glad to be here to talk about the book. Great. Well, it's a privilege to meet you, and I'm, I'm looking forward to discussing this interesting new book on Calvin's historical consciousness. But before we do that, can you tell our listeners some about yourself, your background, and, and maybe what brought you to work on this most recent book? Yeah, sure. Um, I You mentioned I'm at Stanford. I've been here since 1996, where I teach classes for undergraduates and graduate students in religious studies and history, teach classes on Christianity past and present, uh, Calvin and the Reformation, the history of the Bible, and uh, sometimes on women and religion. Um, and I'm also an editor of the 16th Century Journal, which is a really great journal that I'd like to give a plug to. And um, I became interested in this book a long time ago, um, really during the course of writing my first book, which was also on Calvin. It was on his idea of faith, uh, but it also touched on his uh, theology of history and the role of providence. Uh, and I worked a lot with his commentaries uh, in that book as well. And I had some lingering questions about Calvin's understanding of history that came out of his um, his relationship between faith and, and providence that really were the foundation for, for this book. Very good. Well, perhaps we can begin by having you just uh, give us a, a general explanation of, of the thesis of this book and also what ideas in your book maybe challenge some of the assumptions uh, about Calvin as an exegete that are, that are found in, in other literature. Yeah, uh, this book looks at a number of Calvin's major exegetical works, commentaries on the Bible. Um, also, I look at academic lectures that he gave for students and to some of his sermons. And the book tries to examine through what I call a series of connected case studies, how he understands the biblical past um, that is related in these various genres of scripture and how he also seeks to uncover the relevance of the past for his own day, which, um, was in the mid 16th century, a very tumultuous time. Uh, as far as challenging earlier scholarly assumptions, I think the book mostly fills a gap in the literature. 
there are a number of excellent books uh, and articles that have been written about Calvin's interpretation of the Bible, but no other book has pursued an in-depth or sustained analysis of the centrality of his historical consciousness and the different ways his fascination with history, his sense of history um, in the past and, and ongoing in the present just permeates and shapes his interpretation of the Bible. Well, Dr. Pickin, you, oh, go ahead. No, that's okay. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Well, Dr. Pickin, each, each chapter you say in the introduction, it, it, it explores ways in which the, the historical consciousness of Calvin, it, it manifests itself in, in his different types of writings. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk to us some about, about the method you use to analyze these, uh, these different works, um, how, how you, how you analyzed his, his, his historical outlook on exegesis? So the, the approach that I take is uh, an approach called comparative exegesis, which pays attention to the many contexts of Calvin's interpretation by looking at the preceding uh, interpretive tradition, the preceding intellectual condition, tra- uh, traditions and social contexts and the genre of the literature. Um, and this is helpful for Calvin because a lot of times there has been sort of an assumption that Calvin's somehow very unique in what he does. And while I do argue there are some very unusual features of his interpretation when we look at the lens of history, a lot of what Calvin does is really kind of very commonplace and either constrained by the text that he's interpreting or the general orientation of the interpretive tradition. So by focusing on his actual biblical passages and um, viewing these in the various contexts that shape them, as opposed to looking at a theory of interpretation or theology of scripture, um, by these comparative methods, we can really uncover what's what's really distinctive and unusual about Calvin's approach. Um, I want to say, too, that Calvin's works uh, lend themselves to this approach for listeners who haven't uh, looked at Calvin as an interpreter of scripture before. Uh, Most of Calvin's exegetical works, his commentaries or sermons, uh, were published in his lifetime or preserved in manuscript. Uh, His sermons were, in fact, recorded by scribes during the times that he preached. Uh, A lot of them were lost, but we still have a rich body of materials to consider. And by looking at a range of them, we can really see how central the theme of history is across all the works. And in addition with Calvin, we have some excellent work, marvelous work that's been done on the social history of Geneva in Calvin's day, and all of the studies about the daily religious, political, and economic life in Calvin's uh, city, the city that became his home, really help illuminate Calvin's own context beyond merely intellectual ones. So he's just a fascinating to figure because of all the material that we have to consider in looking at this question. Yeah, and I, I think one of one of the important things you deal with bef- before moving to these these different case studies that you detail in the chapters um, are are the varied contexts Calvin lived within the context within which he was interpreting the Bible. You you address his relationship with the medieval interpretive traditions and also with with other sixteenth century theologians. You also have discussion about his social and cultural context, as you mentioned. Um, which I thought was really helpful since, since Calvin doesn't really give too much biographically in his writings. But then you also address uh, his, his broader intellectual environment 
Um, I'm wondering if you can share with us some about Calvin's intellectual milieu um, and and his interaction with with humanistic scholars and and studies and studies in law that that really impacted his thinking. This is uh, really a, a second important um, contribution of the book something that I really enjoyed exploring as I was writing it too, which is the ways in which this not only helps us understand Calvin's understanding of history, but also puts him in a broader context of uh, recovering meaning um, and broader cultural trends for appropriating the past that emerged with the Renaissance. Uh, In the age of the Renaissance, thinkers were developing new approaches to the past and new ways of conceiving the authority of the past, And it's really, I think, helpful to think about the religious reformation itself as a debate about the authority of tradition, which tradition, how to read it, how to appropriate it. Um, So even though tradition was, of course, extremely central to the medieval world and medieval thought, um, but classical and early Christian sources became more fully and broadly available to scholars in the 15th and 16th century. They were available in their original languages. They were available in mass-produced editions because of the um, use of the printing press. And this wide availability and these new methods for thinking about the authority of the past affected Calvin even before he joined up with religious reformation. Calvin's academic training was not in theology, but in law. And through his legal studies in France, he was exposed to some of these new humanistic approaches to the interpretation and engagement with classic Roman law, the the law that had been um, largely compiled in the sixth century and handed down, uh, which itself was now being studied uh, with an eye by, by jurists to its historical context, taking the different laws and uh, through uh, material evidence like inscriptions and coins and a better understanding of the history, uh, organizing and identifying uh, when these different various strata of the law emerged and then thinking about what extent uh, they, they might apply to 16th century France. And it's really interesting to look at um, one of Calvin's later commentaries uh, that I look at in chapter seven on uh, a 1563, he published a commentary on the last four books of the Pentateuch, um, Exodus through Deuteronomy, which is a mix of historical narrative and all the legal material uh, uh, that is so central to the, to the uh, Pentateuch. And Calvin typically comments um, in what's called a continuous method of commenting or uh, preaching where he goes verse by verse and explains each one uh, in order. But in this commentary, he broke with that practice and applied his historical uh, hermeneutic more broadly and creatively. Uh, He Uh, basically commented right on all the narrative up to Mount Sinai. And then he took all of the legal material and redistributed all of the commandments um, through uh, Leviticus and on into numbers under one of the Ten Commandments uh, so that he reorganized all this legislation, very similarly to what his contemporaries were doing with the Code of Roman Law. Um, so I think his unprecedented arrangement of the material really shows how this broader uh, influence of the Renaissance was affecting um, his whole generation's quest for historical method. 
Very interesting. Well, one question that I want to ask before we look to the bulk of the book, uh, you mentioned that Calvin showed a lucid brevity in his exegesis. Um, can you talk to us about how this idea uh, crops up across the various modes of engagement he had with the Bible? Because you're looking at his commentaries, his theological work, but then also sermons and lectures too. Is he different across these varieties at all? He's not as different as we might expect. Um, mm -hmm. His ideal of lucid brevity is one that he professes in uh, the um, preface to his first commentary in the Bible on Romans. And there he also says that his aim, in addition to being lucid and brief, is to explain the mind of the author. Um, and this means that, uh, I mean, you can see already he's, he's interested in the original historical circumstances, as far as he can understand them, that inspired the author to uh, to write or to pronounce uh, these documents, these words that were once written down. And that leads him to think about philology, the words chosen, about the geography and historical details in the commentaries uh, lectures, and also in the sermons, although he doesn't go into as much detail about those kinds of things in the sermons. Uh, the sermons are more rhetorical and repetitive, and they deal more with present application, but he'll often, even in the commentaries and lectures, sort of step back and say, okay, this is what the text is talking about, this is what the the author is meaning, um, in th and this is what we're supposed to learn from it. So he's interested in that question of application also, uh, very practical focus, even in the commentaries and in the lectures. Um, in the chapter on Paul, I was actually able to look at a passage of, of his commentary on Galatians 2 in a sermon, in a commentary, and in the writings from the communal Bible studies that took place in Geneva, all on the same passage. And in all of those, he, uh, Calvin uh, does talk about Paul's particular circumstances that occasioned his writing of the letter and his conflict with Peter. But he focuses in all of those also on the universal uh, teaching that Paul expresses that's still applicable today. So it's always this um, way, this question, not just of understanding the past, but understanding the past and then understanding its relevance for the present that really uh, goes across all of his uh, writings. And what he means by lucid brevity, to come back to your question there, is that he means he's not going to get hung up um, on a digression or go into too much detail, even a theological digression. Uh, he tells people that uh, if they want to know about uh, the um, doctrine of predestination or if they want to understand more about justification, he'll explain what Paul's meaning is here, and then they should go read the Institutes. So that the idea is the, the commenting on the scripture is brief and the Institutes provide fuller topical explanation. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Very good. Well, I'm wondering, maybe we can jump into to Calvin's reception of Paul. 
Um, you mentioned that his his reading of Paul is both polemical and canonical. And you say that Paul, more than any other biblical figure or writer, had shaped Calvin as, as a theologian. Um, can you share with us about Calvin's take on Pauline theology? How is he regarding Paul? Um, you've touched on this some, but w- with, with regard to the rest of the Bible. And was there anything uh, in your research for this section on, on Calvin, on Paul, um, that maybe surprised you? So um, I should say, too, that the chapter on Paul uh, doesn't focus just on one book of the Bible, but focuses on Paul as a biblical figure and looks at some different genres of writing other than exegesis. I look at a a treatise Calvin wrote justifying the Reformation and also at the Institutes. And from my first book, I um, followed out, this is not new to me, but, but I think seeking to understand how Paul functions as Calvin's principal theological authority uh, through the lens of faith. Um, and there, uh, Calvin's understanding of faith as defined in the Institutes is definitely shaped in book three by Paul. And I look at his commentaries to show how that merges out of his Pauline commentaries. But even though Paul is the primary authority in understanding saving faith, um, um, Calvin develops a different and complementary notion of providential faith in his commentaries on the Old Testament, particularly on the Psalms. So chapter four in this book explores this uh, dynamic between um, Pauline authority, but also how Calvin can have a, a ri- wider view of, um, of ideas in the Bible that are not always um, shaped directly by Paul, but can complement his Pauline theological commitments. So in this chapter on Paul, I um, take the liberty of investigating how Paul, as a teacher of universal doctrine, functions as a theological authority and a guide for reform. And the most interesting thing to me in writing this chapter was learning more about the role of Philip Melanchthon, the German reformer, Mm -hmm. in shaping Calvin's approach. So I was following out some earlier studies on the relationship between Melanchthon's theological summary, the Loki Communes, and Calvin's 1539 Institutes. And I argued um, here that Melanchthon really started, um, inaugurated a new way of using Romans as the premier source for doing theology. Um, Again, that's not my original argument, but um, derives largely from uh, other scholars but that Calvin followed Melanchthon in the spirit of this, using Romans as the way to structure theology. Um, If not always to the letter, he didn't always adopt Melanchthon's conclusions. Um, Both Melanchthon and Calvin were similarly very interested in history, um, the classical past, the Christian past, both engaged it. But Calvin, more than Melanchthon, used biblical history in his institutes, in his theological magnum opus, to supplement, illustrate, and defend his views. Melanchthon tended to uh, put his historical comments in other kinds of writings, not so much in Rolotti Comune. So uh, as a theologian, Calvin was integrating his historical consciences into his um, doctrinal work as well. Very good. Well, I, I guess we can move on to the, to the next chapter. You You have a um, chapter here with uh, Calvin on on the Gospel of John, um, and you suggest a surprising shift in Calvin from the traditional Christological interpretations of the book. Um, you say that on the Gospel of John, Calvin is actually downplaying a, a Christological influence. 
Uh, can you tell us what themes then is, is Calvin picking up on instead? So here again, um, I think it's important to remember that I think that Calvin is following an interpretive trend on the Gospel of John that was inaugurated by Melanchthon uh, and to some extent Luther. And Calvin just was more consistent in this trend all the way to the end. Um, this novel, 16th century Protestant or evangelical view, um, redefined the um, character of what had long been known as the spiritual gospel. John is the, the gospel that speaks in loftier spiritual truths and gives insight, especially into Christ's divine nature. Uh, Melanchthon redefined the spiritual character and reversed the traditional view that John offered advanced and more difficult teaching than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And um, that's because Melanchthon, along with Luther, saw John as teaching um, not so much Christological doctrine, though that was there, but having a soteriological point. And Calvin picks this up, but he goes farther and just as he does in his treatment of Old Testament books like the Psalms or Isaiah, Calvin downplays the traditional emphasis among Christian exegetes that the evangelist is teaching a doctrine of Christ's divinity. Um, and he doesn't view the teaching of Christ's divinity as the gospel's central purpose. Instead, he emphasizes how uh, John is talking about uh, human salvation in history and Christ's role in that. So the evangelist, the fourth evangelist for Calvin, isn't providing a deeper grasp of Christ's person, but a more complete portrayal of his salvific mission. Um, not just that Christ is an incarnate God-man mediator, um, but what this mediator does for human beings more than who he is. Mm. Well, I guess a, a follow-up to the same the same section then is is what influence does does Calvin's Genevan context at the time have on his reading of the Gospel of John, if if at all? Uh, well, John was written at a pretty difficult time in uh, Calvin's long career in Geneva uh, in the early 1550s, and in fact, Calvin was writing a commentary on Acts. And John was being discussed um, in these communal Bible studies. And it was at this time that the controversy over predestination began to explode in Geneva. And interestingly, Melanchthon's uh, Loki Communes played a role in that controversy um, in authoring, offering <laughs> fuel for Calvin's opposition. So some scholars have suggested that it was this controversy over predestination and also Calvin's familiarity with the work of the anti-Trinitarian thinker Michael Servetus that provided the impetus for Calvin writing this commentary and that Calvin's purpose then was to write on John um, in starting in 1552. This was prior to when Servetus came, but Calvin was aware of his work prior to when Servetus ended up in Geneva. Um, but to me, it, this is, if you're reading the commentary, uh, Calvin's main purpose in the commentary is not to defend Orthodox Trinitarian and Christological doctrine. Um, he explicitly criticizes early interpreters. He many passages that were long understood to uh, be proofs of Christ's divinity. Calvin says that's not what the evangelist means here. Not that that's wrong. Christ is divine, but it's just not what John's teaching here. 
Um, so it seems to me that um, more likely just that simply Calvin's teaching on um, a particular point of interpretation in John, uh, which he uh, got out of uh, John 8, pre- he, his teaching on predestination was challenged in Geneva. And so he just took the opportunity to write about it. But I don't think his point was necessarily to defend um, that doctrine as the doctrine of the evangelists, but to try to show what he thought John was really talking about. Very good. Well, if we skip ahead a bit and look at your sixth chapter on on Calvin's lectures on Daniel, can you talk to us about what you unpack in this chapter? There's there's this idea uh, that he did not carry an, an eschatological reading of the book, which I suppose, at least in my own reading, may, may have been a bit unusual in his context. You are not alone. <laughs> and it was for sure um, this chapter when I started uh, doing this, it grew out of an article I wrote about 15 years ago, but it, it was the research for what became this chapter that really got me thinking about the possibility of looking more broadly and writing this book. Um, yeah, just like um, Calvin, the way he treats David in the Psalms commentary and the way he treats the prophet Isaiah in his Isaiah commentary, uh, Calvin saw clear analogies between the situations that faced Daniel and his companions during the Babylonian exile, um, or uh, addressed, he thought, by Isaiah and during the Babylonian exile too. And the situation that Reformed Christians found themselves in the 16th century. Um, suffering or threatened with persecution, um, forced into exile. But he relates the situations from the past in Daniel's time um, and the present in a really surprising and frankly unprecedented way. And that really shows a strong sense of historical anachronism. Um, so Calvin does derive moral lessons from Daniel's behavior about how Christians in his day ought to respond to the threat of persecution and the experience of exile. But he pursues a reading of Daniel's book that is more prophetic and historical rather than moral. And what's really surprising, I think probably surprised you, certainly surprised me, is that he limits the scope of Daniel's prophecies to Christ's first advent, that is to his appearance in the first century, to historically past events. So unlike many of his contemporaries and, you know, many readers throughout the ages, Calvin, or Christian readers anyway, Calvin didn't view the book of Daniel as an eschatological handbook predicting and showing how the end of the world would come. And he's been credited with inaugurating a critical shift in the history of the interpretation of Daniel that is non-eschatological. So for Calvin, speaking to his or in his lectures to 16th century auditors, they ought to understand that Daniel's prophecies have been fulfilled, all of them, with the exception of the final resurrection prophesied in, in chapter 12. And that um, really understanding them and, and applying their meaning uh, to the present doesn't mean that they are forecasting events to come in the 16th century or any other time, but to understand how they were fulfilled and then to draw analogies to later times. Um, and so these analogies are possible, not because the prophet was speaking about 
the future down to the present or the end times, but because all of history is connected under divine providence. So this is, again, this theme of um, historical providence and divine superintendence of all events that connects the biblical past to the present. And this is how Calvin thinks people can find meaning when they live in later periods of history um, and living in situations that are similar to biblical ones. Very good. Well, I guess if we look over to your final chapter and we're thinking about Calvin's uh, historicizing engagement uh, with the book of Second Samuel, can you talk to us about this idea of historical vision and and how biblical history, not Calvin, not here employing uh, a, a biblical typological reading, but biblical history, how it was how it was formative for um, his particular congregation in Geneva that that was listening to his preaching um, in the middle of civil war. Yeah, so these sermons are set um, during the first civil war that erupted in France um, during the spring of 1562. And at that time, Calvin began um, a series of 87 sermons on the book of Second Samuel, which talks about um, Israel's civil wars under David. Uh, and I argue that these sermons offer an important resource for exploring the kinds of mindsets and emotions that Calvin sought to evoke among his listeners as he was shaping the response of ordinary Genevans to these unfolding events. Um, We don't know exactly how they responded, but we can tell from the sermons what he's trying to get them to do in response. Uh, so, again, he dives deep into the biblical history in the sermons, and he talks about the history as a unique record of the past. He distinguishes sacred history from profane history and says that the biblical history can relate to subsequent ages, can be meaningful, and can help illuminate the present because uh, the scriptures speak to the present situation not, as you said, by um, prefiguring them, but uh, through their own chronicle past events, they can open up um, opportunities to reflect on the present. And then in the course of the sermons, he issues frequent invitations to his congregation to make the connection between the biblical history by comparing it with their own experience. He opens up a space for them uh, to engage in that in the context of the sermon, or supposedly maybe on their own, but um, he doesn't tell them what the history means for them, but he actually encourages this um, exercise of their faith uh, in the context of hearing the sermon. Great. Well, Dr. Pitkin, I'm, I'm really grateful that you've written this book. Um, I think it shows the breadth and, and also complexity of Calvin and his exegesis. He's not, he's not speculative, as, as some may think. And, and for everyone who would endeavor to see Calvin as a very historically-minded theologian, handling the Bible in, in his own context and within theological traditions, and even diverging from those at some points, um, I think this book goes a really long way. Um, but before we wrap up, um, maybe you can tell our listeners what you're working on now and what they may expect from you next. Well, thanks so much, Zach, for this conversation. Um, it's been really fun to go back and, and think about the book 
Um, I have to confess, I feel like I'm not done with history in the early modern period, <laughs> but I'd like to shift a little bit away from from Calvin. I'm also been interested in a slightly earlier contemporary of Calvin, who's often known as a participant in the more radical uh, reform movements of his day. Uh, this is Sebastian Frank, and he wrote a massive book called Chronicle, uh, Book of Time and Historical Bible, which is kind of part history, um, part speculation, um, part theosophy. It's super fascinating and very complicated and totally unlike Calvin. So <laughs> I'm hoping to work on Sebastian Frank's Chronicle and uh, learn a little bit more about the ways history is being used and constructed um, in the 16th century. Very good. Well, for now, thank you for writing this book. It's called Calvin, the Bible and History, and it's out now with Oxford University Press. And Dr. Pickin, thank you so much for joining me on the show this morning. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network.